Hi, I'm David Tipton. Hi, I'm Scott Tipton. We write Star Trek comics for IDW Publishing. And are currently working on the Star Trek Mirror Wars miniseries. And you're listening to Trek Untold. Hello and welcome to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. There are only so many seasons of Star Trek shows out there because, well, making a TV show costs a lot of money. And don't get me started on the astronomical price of making films. But when it comes to the medium of comics, you can do a whole lot more at the cost of a whole lot less. The expanded Star Trek universe in sequential art form has existed for as long as the original series has, and fills gaps just as much as all the books out there do, too. Are they canonical? Well, sometimes, but does that really matter when you find a really excellent story? Case in point, I've been really enjoying what IDW has been doing with their Star Trek franchise they've had in comics since the mid-2000s. And that includes giving us some truly amazing crossovers that really you could never have in TV shows, including Star Trek crossovers with Doctor Who, Planet of the Apes, and most recently, the Transformers. And in case you're wondering, yes, the Enterprise does transform and get into a fistfight with Megatron. The comics will give us interesting viewpoints and perspectives that we really didn't have a chance to explore in the TV shows, as well as all these amazing battles and all these things that really you can't necessarily do in a TV show because it's just going to cost too much to make. That's why I'm a big fan of comics, and that's why especially I am super excited to be chatting with today's guests. Scott and David Tipton are brothers who've been writing Star Trek comics since 2007. That list includes the Klingons Blood Will Tell miniseries, Spock Reflections, the original series Tale of Mirror Images, the DS9 Odo murder mystery story Too Long a Sacrifice, the epic Q Conflict miniseries that is one of my favorite things that IDW has done with Star Trek comics in quite some time, and their current Mirror Universe saga, which has been spanning across a few years now, and takes the Next Generation cast and thrusts them into the Mirror Universe in a way we've never seen them before. We're talking drama, we're talking intrigue, we're talking action, and we're talking versions of these characters that are really something we can only ever imagine, and now we've got them in the pages of this awesome IDW comic. So today on Trek Untold, we're going to learn all about these siblings and comic historians and lovers to learn how they write comics together, take a deep dive into some of the miniseries that they've written, examine the entire process of how a comic gets done start to finish, and hear about what they're doing right now with the TNG Mirror Universe comics. So if you thought Trek Untold was nerdy before, you ain't heard nothing yet. We're going page by page and frame by frame into Star Trek comics here with Scott and David Tipton on this week's episode of Trek Untold. But before we begin this week's episode, if you'd like to support this show, please don't forget to follow Trek Untold on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to get the latest updates and all sorts of other fun Star Trek-related content. You can also check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash trekuntold, where you can support this show for as little as $2 a month. At higher tiers, you can check out the shows before they come out, know about my guests in advance, and even have a chance to ask them questions, among other benefits coming soon. Shout out to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions who create 3D-printed toys and prop replicas inspired by Star Trek. Their items come in all shapes and all sizes and are always amazing, but you're going to hear a little bit more about them later on in the show. If you're listening to us on iTunes or any other audio platform that allows for ratings and reviews, please leave us a five-star rating and a positive review. If you're watching this on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to us at youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday and give the video a thumbs up and a comment. Doing any of those things help keep this show growing and allow me to continue bringing you awesome guests and great conversations every single week. Now, without further ado, let's beam in this week's guest. Computer, 
Access interview file. And welcome back to Trek Untold, and things are about to get a lot nerdier than usual because I'm about to geek out over some comics with two writers whose work I am very familiar with and very excited to be chatting with today. We're joined by Scott and David Tipton. Gentlemen, how's it going? Hi, Thanks. nice to see you. So, yeah, we got a lot to discuss here. Uh, you know, you're actually not our first comic book guest ever. Our first guest was David Baker. He also has done some stuff for IDW and the world of Voyager. Um, but, yeah, I, I love talking comics, and I know you guys are, are true comic buffs and historians as well. Um, so let's actually back things up a little bit and get focused on Star Trek. Otherwise, I'm going to keep rambling. Um, so I'm going to start with uh, let's, let's start, let's start with you, Scott. Uh, what's your earliest memory of Star Trek? Oh, that's easy. I mean, our house was a Star Trek house when I was a kid. KTVU, Channel 2 in San Francisco, every day at 5, uh, uh, David and I and our dad, we watched Star Trek. It's just that, that it, was all, it was always there. And if it, wasn't, if it wasn't Star Trek on Channel 2, it was my Mego Star Trek figures or the Gold Key Star Trek comics. It's always been like a fixture. I'm glad you already mentioned Gold Key Comics. We're going to talk a lot about those, I feel like, today. <laughs> you know, Scott and I both would read comics a lot as a kid. Um, and we always had comic books around when we were kids. And one of the things we used to read quite often were the old Gold Key Comics. And, you know, in those days, the Gold Key Comics were new. So you might see them at a, at a, in a spinner at, a, at something like a 7-Eleven. Or you might find them in trade collections uh, in uh grocery stores or bookstores. So that's something that we always remember about with, with Star Trek is that connection to the gold key comics. Those comics are pretty interesting because, you know, that really is the first Star Trek comic that existed. And there wasn't exactly a style guide at that point either. So, you know, different artists would draw things differently. You'd have key characters be colored in odd colors. They'd be making up all sorts of random aliens. Uh, are, are there any gold key comics from Star Trek that, uh, that stick out in your mind as ones that are favorites? Uh, actually, it's been interesting, really. About a year ago or so, at the height of the pandemic, I did a whole sort of tweet run about all the Gold Key comics, and I went through them issue by issue, which was interesting to me because I'd never done that before. I looked at them as a kid, but I never sort of looked at them in issue by issue. So it was interesting to see how they changed over time. People have a lot of assumptions about them. They think they're all bad for some reason, or they think they're all anachronistic or they think they all got Star Trek wrong. And in fact, if you actually looked them over, over time, the Gold Key comics got better and better and they got more and more accurate to the show. The early ones, you know, sometimes they had Italian artists that didn't know Star Trek very well, but it didn't stay that way. But people often think that. And over time, when you get up to where the time when Gold Key no longer had the license, uh, their Star Trek comics were really not all that terrible at all. They were actually uh, sometimes quite good. Um, the Gold Key comics in particular really like to do sort of a lot of guys wearing robes, a lot of sort of medieval <laughs> things going on, planets. And there were a lot of sort of monster-oriented comics as well in the Gold Key ones. But a lot of them had had sort of a their own kind of unique feel that wasn't really like the DC or the Marvels later on. What else do you think, I about mean Scott? Yeah, I mean uh, that first the first few episodes the, the first few issues, which by the way, when I first started, the book was like quarterly or bi-monthly, so they weren't coming out very frequently. And those first few issues, the artists hadn't even really seen the show because it wasn't airing in Italy, so they're working off of like black and white photo ops or, fo uh, or, or, or press kits. So it's the way you get crazy stuff like the Enterprise having flames coming out of themselves 
and like all the crew wearing backpacks. And they, they mistook they mistook um uh Janice Rand's beehive hair for like a hat. So it's actually colored like a hat, even though it's not. But later on, once the show you know, became the thing it was, and Goldkeep maintained the license for a, a fairly long time, they kind of did what kind of what Star Trek did is like all of a sudden we're on the voodoo planet and there's a crazy there. Or or we'd be on like they probes and they'd be like various historical planets with with mad mad historians or you would get um pirate stories so they kind of did much of the same thing that the tv show did in that it's kind of taking these science science fiction tropes and translating them through the star trek lens but yeah, yeah. as as the show went on or as the, the series went on it got much much closer to uh feeling like as as much a good trek as anything else that's been comics and when I took that look at those gold keys, it was the case that in some of those early gold keys, because they were dealing with just uh, sometimes black and white images, they got the colors and the uniforms wrong. They were all green. But when the reprints came out years later, they went back and recolored them and fixed it. So that showed they knew that was wrong and they knew they had to fix it. And that's something that uh, yeah. people were kind of really shocked. What do you mean? What do you mean they actually fixed it later? Yeah, they did fix it later on. And so... I mean, it was the case, you know, there's some famous stories about some people involved with Star Trek who later on kind of helped out with some of the gold keys and got them a little bit more on track for a while. And that that played a role in it, too. I think it was Doug Drexler and some others who, uh, I mean, if you look at those gold keys as uh, elements of 1970s sci-fi and 1970s comics, they make a lot of sense. You're like, oh, I can see this. They, 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 they're not really as, as, as strange as they might seem. Um, there's a really weird one where uh, Spock goes to some planet and um, they need help, and in, to get to get his, Spock's help, they enlarge his brain. Of course, and they, and they enlarge his entire head, and so panel after panel, his head gets bigger and bigger. So they would sometimes do things you couldn't do in the TV series, and and they knew they were doing that, and then they thought that was well, that was kind of funny actually. And so uh, it, it's kind of a kick to see those. Um, that's if one I'm, of the things I really like about them. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, also credit is due to I think Len Wine came in and yes. wrote a bunch of those toward the end of the run. Yeah. Uh, a lifelong Star Trek fan, the, the whole during the whole run and through the seventies. So when he came in, it got a lot more trekkier. <laughs> right, it did. And, and as the, as when you look at the later ones, especially, there's interesting stuff. They bring in McCoy's daughter, which as you know, someone knew something about Star Trek. You kind of slip that kind of stuff in there. And uh, I, had, I like I like to see the goalkeeper. What's that? Didn't we have the issue? Didn't we have the issue when we were kids with jo- with Joanna? We did, <laughs> and, and there was like a big uh, space bear that had her on top of this tower. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. That's I, remember, one, I remember the one of the most bear. famous, one of the most world famous gold key covers. Actually, I think it's actually a pretty yeah. pretty soon after one. I love how I'm bringing up all these old memories from uh, old classic Star Trek comics, and uh, you know yeah. they're they're a lot of fun to look back on. I mean, I, during the pandemic too, I started rereading. Uh, a lot of the old DC Star Trek Next Generation books, because that was like my era of comic reading. And I remember not really liking them as a kid, but I went through the entire run. I think most of that series was written by Michael Jan Freeman. And yeah. uh, they're really good. And they did so many things that, like you said, you couldn't do on the TV show because you got a TV show budget. In the comics, you can do whatever you want. And it just gives you so much more freedom to to explore things. That's, that's kind of really ex- exciting thing about doing comics. Yeah. 
And I'll always be sympathetic to somebody who's doing comics for a show that's currently airing. Mm, yep. Because you can't do what they're doing because they don't want you to step on their toes and they're going to take things in directions you don't know about. So you're really kind of, you're, you're, you're fighting the dragon and racing it, but not knowing how you're going to be judged. That's a tough thing to do. Yeah. And the DC comics had to deal with that uh, in another way that new movies would come out and invalidate the stories they'd been telling. <laughs> And so they'd have to do a reboot of the comic series to take into account, oh, this new movie changed everything that we thought we were doing previously. So throughout your young age reading comics, do you remember if there was one comic in particular, maybe even a group of comics or a creator who kind of changed the way that you look at the medium and maybe made you want to actually become part of this industry? And uh, let me start with you, Scott. I mean, do you remember anybody like that? Oh, the answer is easy for me. It was Mark Grunewald. Mark Grunewald was the editor, an editor at, at, uh, at Marvel Comics in the in the late 70s and 80s and back in the day i was i was a letter hack i was one of those guys who was always writing letters that would go on the letter columns and mark would always print my letters and so as i got older and started going to conventions i would start to stop by and talk to mark and mark and we would get to know each other and he knew what i liked and didn't like and mark kind of like was kind of like my mentor in comics and his run on Captain America is absolutely amazing. It holds, it's, it's like a 10-year run. He did the famous uh, storyline in the 80s where the government forces Steve Rogers to stop being Captain America, which is like a big chunk of that recent Disney Plus series took from. He wrote an amazing series called Squadron Supreme. He wrote the first Hawkeye miniseries, which the, the recent um, uh, Hawkeye series on Disney also took from. Think about how to write and edit. It all came from my 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 um, interactions with, with with the group. He was a great guy who died way too young. He he passed away from a heart attack at like I think 40, 41. Just uh, just as he was about to like you know uh, just after the Marvel DC crossover hit. So he was like at the most influential point of his career, and then suddenly he was gone. It was just a horrible tragedy to bum me out. But Gru was the guy for me. Gru was my Gru was my comic book go to. How about you, David? Was there any comic book creator that kind of uh, left an indelible mark on you and made you want to go into this and, and look at comics in a different way? Um, well, there's a couple things. I mean, one thing is that no one really like grows up and thinking, oh, I'm going to be a comic book writer and it just happens. It doesn't really work that way. I wish it did. Everybody wishes it did, but it doesn't quite work that way. But I mean, as far as an influence like that goes, the one person I, I can think of and who I actually got to meet was Harlan Ellison. And I remember I knew Harlan's work going way back. And then when I was in college, uh, oddly enough, I kept getting assigned uh, some of Harlan's work in different classes. So it was really something special for me when Scott and I got to work with Harlan on um, the City of the Native Forever project. And I'd always been a big fan of Harlan's work, the way Harlan thought about things. And Harlan was more than just a single kind of, he didn't really think about just a single kind of genre. I mean, Harlan wrote, wrote books on all kinds of things. And so that was always part of the background of my thinking about how hard to look at things as well. I don't know about you, but I often still go on YouTube and I check out Harlan's old YouTube channel. It's still just like a hotbed of really great information. Also just a lot of fun rants. Yeah. There's a lot of rants. Yeah. <laughs> Harlan yeah. and rants go together. <laughs> I, it, it, it still surprised me to this day that, that, that I wound up being in a place where, you know, Harlan was our friend and, you know, we, I was at his house and we hung out and he was, we had to dinner and he was, he was 
Harlan's biggest secret was that he didn't want anybody to know he was a good guy. <laughs> he was. And so the, the fact that the, all that material with Harlan is, still, is on the internet, I find it's a comfort. It's nice to be able to go back there and kind of like, you know, hang out with Harlan again for a little bit. Because and, nice. you know, up close and personal, the man was a sort of force of nature. There's a one time we were at uh, Blast, Off, Blast Off Comics, a store that Scott used to work with uh, Jed Meyer in the store. And we had Harlan there as uh, there for a signing. We also had J.K. Woodward there. We had Chris Roth, my DW there. And Harlan was in full Harlan mode. He was uh, signing stuff on paper. Signing stuff on the front. I'm sorry. And then, and then, um, like I said, he was in full Harlan mode. He was harassing people. People were coming up and talking to him, and he would give them a hard time. Somewhat facetiously, sometimes not. And there was a point where I went to the back rooms, like I kind of need a break from Harlan for a little bit. And I go back there and there's Scott and Chris and JK and they're all back there hiding out from Harlan too. <laughs> and I, like, I, I looked at, I looked at me like, yeah, we just need a little bit of a break from Harlan. We're doing fine. But yeah, I think, <laughs> J- I think JK and Chris and I were passing around a, a, a bottle. Like, I need a shot. I didn't mean to interrupt you, David, but I just wanted to add, Harlan came into the store swinging a sword. Oh, yes. Because he thought that was necessary. Yes, that's right. Yeah. At some point during that day, he showed me a pocket knife, too. Yeah, he did pull a knife on you, which I thought was (laughs) The best thing about it is he pulled a knife on you, and you just didn't even blink. Dude, come on. And he just chuckled, like, all right. I think that's yeah. the first story I've had on this podcast about someone uh, about to get shivved by Harlan Ellison. So that's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> you just yeah. completely no sold it. It was great. Yeah. I mean, I, I have another Harlan story, which is kind of amusing. Um, Chris Rawl went to um, the Las Vegas Star Trek show with Harlan. And at one point, uh, Harlan was a little under the weather at this point. He was riding around in one of those little sort of. Rascal. What do you call them, Scott? Rascal. A rascal. So it's a little motorized device to help him get around. I mean, he wasn't, he could still walk, but it was because when you go to a convention, it's a lot of walking. He was using this little rascal to help him get around. And at some point when they were, I guess, setting up the booth, Harlan revved up the rascal and rammed into the booth and ran over Chris Ralph, Mighty W. <laughs> and at some point, Chris was looking up and seeing Harlan looking down at him with the bicycle, like the motorcycle, like this. <laughs> Chris described it as the scene you always see whenever, um, whenever Snoopy would run by with the with the blanket and knock out Linus, and Linus would be in the air with his feet completely in the air. That yeah. was that was Chris. And I've always wanted to see a J.K. Woodward painting of that scene yeah. myself. <laughs> it sounds like someone needs to make a private commission right there. I would like to see that too. Yes. <laughs> I love that visually just gave me Scott with the, with the peanuts characters. That's like yeah. perfect image. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm kind of curious to know, uh, you know, did you guys always write comics professionally together or was there a time where you guys were doing your own kind of separate things? I mean, when, when did uh, you two join forces? I had a bit of a head start. I, I got to know um, uh, Chris Ryle uh, through advertising and then Chris got the job and Chris got the job or running one of Kevin Smith's websites he brought me in to help run that. So, the, so Chris and I ran the, the movie poop shoot 
com, which was his offshoot from one of the Jay and Silent Bob movies. That was Kevin Smith's website at the time. Yeah. And which, then, which was a name drawn from one of Kevin's movies. Yeah. And then uh, from that, Chris eventually got the job at IDW as editor in chief. And when he got the job, I'm like, look, you know, I was, I had always planned on trying to get into comics, but then whenever Mark Grunewald passed away, I kind of lost my passion for it. And so I, I instead I moved to LA and I got into advertising. And, but I told Chris, like, if there's ever something that comes up you think I'd be good for, give me a call and I'll give it a try. And I did a couple of horror anthologies for him and that was fun. And then I started writing Angel and Spike comics for IDW. And then they got the Star Trek license about a year after I started writing Angel and Spike. And that was when I said, hey, look, I'm not saying just give me the job because I know you can't just give me the job, but open the door. Let me pitch it. And I, this is what I want to do. This, this, I can do this. And so I pitched IEW and CBS on our, on a, a, a Klingon take on Rashomon, where we would look at all the Captain Kirk st- uh, stories with Klingons from the Klingon perspective. That was the other uh, Blood Scott, Will I Tell series, I right? On that. I, I think I helped you on that pitch. It was. Oh no, no, you, I, I did, but but at the time you weren't actually writing, and so you, but you did the, you definitely definitely well, helped, you dumped the pitch. The first project we worked on was actually the um, the Astro Boy project. No, Astro Boy was a couple years later. Mm, I don't think yeah, so. But no, but no, because because the, I remember specifically because you hadn't written comics, and I said, look, just do the first one. And if you don't like it, you don't have to do it again. But on this first Trek comic, I know that I'm going to be coming to you for advice because we we both think the same way about Star Trek. And if you like it, we'll keep doing it. We'll check the numbers later. Right. Then, yeah. I'm going to start playing the Amok Time fight music, you guys, because it's duking it out all. Whoever's the winner gets the yeah. story. Regardless, there was only like about a one-year jump between whenever I started writing comics and then whenever David and I started working on Star Trek. And at that time... IDW, something like Star Trek was pretty new to IDW. I mean, they they were just getting into more licensed material at that time. Yeah, they had they had just at the same time pretty much gotten with Ninja Turtles, and either just before or just after was when they got GI Joe and Transformers. Yeah, so all these licenses suddenly hit them at once. Yeah, there was a lot of things going on in the coin market at the time that sort of led to that (laughs) which we don't need to go into all those details but there was a a lot of it was a period of of rapid change in licensed comics basically (laughs) yeah it's kind of funny that star trek is actually what brought you guys together you basically answered like two questions in one shot for me so great job in doing that by the way yeah yes i think that series you guys are talking about was uh, it was the blood will tell miniseries right so uh so how do you approach a story with Klingons? Because that's that's kind of a... I mean, you guys have had to deal with some really interesting Star Trek characters, but Klingons, they really are practically a universe of their own, right? So uh, how do you guys handle working on a Klingon? I mean, uh, it all comes... I mean, and David, correct me if you think I'm wrong. It all comes from the, from the original material, and especially from the original material of the time what we're doing. Since that one was focused mostly on original series and the films... Then we'd try to look at everything Klingon from that perspective and just, just look at everything that's laid out and then go from there. Boy, that looks a while back at this point. But I mean, yeah. I think <laughs> I think what we were thinking about at the time was we really were trying to do it from very much a Klingon perspective. And we used the sort of development of the Klingons that we saw in Next Gen to flesh out what we what in some ways was a story about a original series Klingon. Is that right, Scott? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And 
you know, one of the things that um, NextGen did with the Klingons is they made them a little bit less of sort of generic bad guys who seemed like they might be the Russians. <laughs> yeah. I mean, a, a classic Klingon, especially for the TV show, is much more a little bit kind of a, a sweaty mustache twirling bad guy. And what what and even the movies kind of like kept. I mean, the the the, the Klingons and especially in Star Trek Three, they're just bad. I mean, there, there's nothing almost nothing good about Christopher Lloyd's crew. He's a villain. But Next Gen really tried to flesh them out and make it more of a culture. And Next Gen had no choice because they put Worf on the bridge. Right. So so Klingons could no longer be simple. Uh, oh, yeah. these are just uh, uh, you know uh, cut and dry villain bad guy characters and so either one good Klingon <laughs> right and so I think that was part of what we were thinking about with uh, that series is okay how do we sort of develop that and 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 show that next gen version of the Klingons um and tie it in going back to Klingons in the original series right and we would occasionally get bumps in the road like when we started to tackle the the uh the 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 trouble with tribbles issue the whole question of arn darvin who is a klingon agent disguised to look like a human because we also had to tackle the whole boneheads versus not bonehead klingon which even at that point i think enterprise had just kind of touched on it so we we decided we kind of decided well the, the it's a more interesting way to tackle the story if this was a bone a ridged head klingon who had to go through horrible surgery to look like a human and actually give that story a bit more weight than just say, well, this is one of the, one of the classic ones who just needs to like, you know, get a little, a little skin lightening and look a little less, a little less devious all the time. Yeah. And then I think the other part of that is we had uh, what was at the time an emerging new artist who was someone who was really good at, getting across the kind of details you're talking about, Scott. Does that make sense? (laughs) It was one of David Messina's first big, uh, big licensed books. And we had no idea when we, when we got to to work with him, how big a Star Trek fan he was. And something about his art really led and lent to that characterization and and that portrayal of the Klingons that I, I'm not even sure we were, well, I know we were not expecting that when we started. (laughs) No, that, that was a, we, the one thing we have had great fortune with during our entire IW run is they've always, without fail, gotten us great artists. Yeah, and in a lot of cases, we've got artists that uh, were just breaking, uh, just sort of IDW introduced them, and now they've gone on to big things. Yeah, know? I mean, Ra- Ra- Rachel Stott, Elena Casagrande, David Messina, all, yeah. all these guys went on to, 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 to like, you know, do all the great stuff, which is fantastic, you know. I mean, as a comic book reader who's enjoying these books, I can totally uh, agree with those statements. It's all been really great work there. And I, I like what you said a few minutes ago also about kind of like adding the Rashomon elements to the Klingons too, because I've always felt like the Klingons, you know, we know that they're a warrior race, but it always has felt like very nondescript. So, you know, I feel like bringing in uh, samurai ideology is, is a pretty smart way to really cement their, their kind of warrior status. Yeah, which is what the show did later on. And so we kind of took that 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 note from TNG. And I mean, when we first started talking about it, I think, yeah, this is what you were talking about, David, when we first started actually developing this idea. I love the notion that for the Klingons, everything they're trying to do during that period, and Kirk just shows up again. And there's Kirk again. This guy's killing us. So I, I love that notion of Kirk being like this perpetual thorn in their side. 
Yeah, and it's kind of funny. In some of the later movies, they sort of touch on that note that uh, the Klingons are just tired of him. <laughs> <laughs> now, Scott, David, you guys also wrote a miniseries I really, really enjoyed, and that was the Q Conflict, which came out a few years ago. Uh, in my mind, it's almost kind of like comparable to Marvel's Secret Wars, because you're basically taking, you know, Kirk, Picard, Janeway, and Sisko, getting the best of their crew together to essentially have a war uh, where these omnipotent beings are using them as their pawns. And it's it's such a cool miniseries. I love it a lot. Uh, I'd like to know, like, did you guys go to IDW with that idea? Did they come to it with you? How did this all come together? And how did this massive Q war come together? It's so cool. I'm, I'm IDW Sorry, guys. kind of came to us. This was a Greg project, right, Scott? Yeah, credit, credit where it's due. This was a Greg Goldstein. Yeah, and Greg Goldstein came he to was, us. He was and... the president at the time. And normally, for, on, on the vast majority of our books, it's usually us coming up with an idea cold and pitching it to them. And sometimes that'll lead us to where they say, we like this, give us more of it. Sometimes it'll be stuff where we're trying to figure out how to do this. But on that one, there was the only time where I think it was absolutely a cold call, where I was sitting in my office, and I got a call from, from Greg, who we knew, but Greg Goldstein never called me. So I, I, <laughs> I look at my phone and it says Greg Goldstein. I'm like, well, this could be good or not. He goes, yeah, I'm thinking we need something big for Star Trek. <laughs> I, want, I want you to do something big. I want you to get every crew involved. Like, and then we had these great couple meetings with Greg after that, where Scott, Greg, and I just hashed this thing out. And um, sometimes when you have those kind of meetings with comics, it's a slog because you're thinking about, okay, what does the market want? What's the licensor want? What would, what would actually work? What is not going to look like it's too much of uh, another team up or another crossover. And so we had these great meetings with Greg where he sort of hashed, okay, well, what, do we do? What, what about this? What about this? And, and uh, it was, it was fascinating stuff. And so we, we hashed out this plan and then we took it to CBS and they liked it a lot too. So it was, it was, it was, it was one of my, one of my favorite projects in terms of the genesis of it. I think, I, I think probably you might think the same thing, Scott. Yeah, no, it was, it was just, Greg was so excited about it. And he was, and he was also the one who fought for years to get Star Trek plan of the apes done. Yeah. Greg, yeah. Greg was the one to really muscle that together. And uh, he was the one that came to us and said, look, we've, we've had this with other people and nobody can crack it. You guys should be the ones figuring it out. What do you think? And David and I were both apparently Davis fans. So, of course, we're like, absolutely, we'll do it. And just a side note, not to, to veer away from you, but on that one, we just, we, we right up the pitch. And uh, we sent it off to CBS and to Fox and IEW. And the note comes back to us as, you know, we, we really like this, but can you make it apier? <laughs> right yeah. We can definitely make it apier, but with with Q, it was just—I mean—that was very much just something that that came to us and said, uh, uh, "I want something big. Let's talk about it." Yeah, and um, for me, one of the best things about that series was I really liked to be able to integrate Q into that story and and get Q right, which I think is hard to do. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm can- not always—I'm not always the biggest fan of the crossover type stories, but in this case, because Q is there. To me, it made more sense. Um, I mean, because normally with crossovers, like, well, how does that happen? Well, in this case, well, how does that kind of thing happen? Well, the only thing that could really do that is Q. <laughs> so to me, that 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 made a crossover make more sense, even though it was an internal crossover with Star Trek. But having Q there 
kind of allowed us to throw caution to the wind and make it uh, a Q type story and make a crossover story work a little better than it might otherwise, I think. And it also really helped that specifically the original series has a lot of godlike aliens. Sure does. So there's enough of there's enough of those that it wasn't just Q and then we could we could actually have factions and we could really play with some of those dynamics. To me as a fan, you like one of my favorite comics IDW did in the last few years was their Transformers vs. G.I. Joe miniseries. And uh, like to me in my head, that was like basically they just got all their toys together, threw them in a, on their on the floor, and just kind of played with them and made a comic around it. And I felt like uh, you know, the, the Q Wars is basically kind of the same thing, where you got just, you know, all these characters, you, you pulled everybody out of your toy box and you had them all play together, and that's just what was so beautiful about doing that book. Throughout the entire writing of that of that series, I don't know, David, if you did this, but you know, because by the second episode issue, we had the draft where each 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 would have to draft their own team. I had a, a piece of paper stuck next to my monitor with tape that had every every team and who was on it just to make sure I was getting around everybody and everybody was getting a moment in each issue. We're trying to because there's just so many there's just so many plates we had spinning with that book. Yeah, if if there's sort of a weak point of that book, it might be having that many people can be hard. <laughs> and like Scott said, I mean, I, I actually had a, a diagram up too, because like, well, all right, if we're going to do this, you got to do everybody that we said we're going to do. <laughs> and I like the way that having Q there made an artificial situation seem more real in a way. Because yeah, it, of Q. it gave a license to happen in a way that we couldn't do without Q. Yeah. And just uh, in terms of your Secret Wars reference, there is one spread in the series that's a direct homage to Secret Wars. Oh, now I need to go back and reread it. Uh, see, <laughs> how did I miss that? <laughs> I've been out nerded, sir. Excellent job. Uh, <laughs> Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. Ranging from prop replicas to use in a fan film or cosplay to accessories or playsets for figures in all different sizes, Triple Fiction Productions has got you covered. Past pieces for toys have included large centerpieces like 10 Forward from the Enterprise D, shuttlecrafts complete with working lights, and the Voyager Bridge, with smaller pieces including Borg alcoves, the Genesis device, and the dreaded arch enemy of Worf, barrels. All highly detailed products are 3D printed and hand painted in the USA, with new items added all the time, while simultaneously improving their printing quality based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit triple-fictionproductions.net or visit them on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Want to get 10% off your next purchase? Use code UNTOLD10 at checkout to receive this discount. Not applicable during sales or clearance events. That's code UNTOLD10 to get 10% off action figure dioramas, accessories, and prop replicas. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. Hey, I'm Licia Naff, a.k.a. Ensign Sonia Gomez from Star Trek TNG, and now Captain Sonia Gomez on Lower Decks with her own ship, the Archimedes. Yay! I finally got a promotion after 25 years. 
So anyway, I'm here to talk about drivebydogooders.org. It's a little charity I run where we go to the outskirts of Skid Row and from our car windows, we hand out basic human essentials like water, wipes, cold stream cheese, socks, tarps, masks, t-shirts, things to keep people warm. So we just think that everyone deserves clean water, some protein and a way to clean themselves, especially during Corona. We also hand out masks to those who really, really need it, who live in tents on the street, mainly the disabled and elderly who have a really hard time getting to services. And we do all of this with no agenda, just pure giving, no overhead. If you'd like to go to the website and donate, it's 100% tax deductible. And if you click on the donate button, you can go right to the $35 option and pick a signed autograph picture of either the Star Trek The Next Generation or Lord X or Total Recall, where I played the three-breasted mutant hooker on Mars, and uh, that's the X-rated version. Put in the comments section your address and anything you'd like me to write, and I'll personally inscribe it and mail it off to you immediately. And again, that's drivebydogooders.org. Ensign, I mean, Captain Sonia Gomez, signing off. We now return to Trek Untold. I want to jump to what you guys are working on right now, which is the Mirror War series. Um, but you guys actually have a little bit of a history doing the Mirror Universe stuff, because I think one of your earlier books also was uh, was also about the Mirror, Mirror World. That was uh, Mirror Images, right? That was right. the original crew? Yeah, the, that, that one was... The, the basic thrust of that was was how Kirk got the Enterprise from Pike in the Mirror Universe. That Mirror series isn't really related to our, our later Mirror stories at all, really. <laughs> I think that Mirror series was only a four-issue, Scott? Maybe four? It was, it was a five, and there was one, cause there's the one issue interlude with Picard in the middle. That was all original series, except for the one Picard in the middle. Yeah, it was very, and, it was a very young Picard aboard Star Trek. Yes, it was very young Picard, and so it 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 didn't lead to what later become the the later Mirror stories. Um, it kind of stands alone, I think. <laughs> yeah, but there, there's nothing in that 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 goes against anything we have here. No, no, I think I think we've managed to to, to do that. Which one of the things that's difficult is keeping mirror stories straight over time because it's hard enough keeping Star Trek canon straight and then you've got mirror Star Trek canon. <laughs> and then yeah. also with, with the, the rise of new Star Trek series and they began dipping into the mirror universe, making sure yeah. that what we do, it does not go against what they're doing also. So it's, there's it's, it's tricky. And for folks who are listening to this interview for the first time and haven't really read these comics yet, you know, this this mirror saga, if you will, uh, this is basically like the grand opus of the Star Trek mirror universe right now. So we've had uh, Mirror Broken, I believe, was first, and then we mm-hmm. got Through the Mirror, uh, and then followed by Terra Incognito, and uh, yeah. I think now we're up to the Mirror War. I think that covers everything, right? So, yeah. uh, you know, I, I always found it odd that TNG on the TV show never really touched the mirror universe. I mean, I kind of know why they did, uh, why they didn't, rather. Um, but, you know, the comics did. Michael Jan Friedman, I don't know if you guys are aware, he actually did, uh, in his TNG comic run, he did touch on the Mirror Universe and he actually brought it in. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think on TNG, reason why, well, like you said, there's there's a number of reasons why TNG didn't do it in the actual episodes. One of the reasons I think was that there was a tendency during the the Next Generation run to try to not overdo stuff that had been yeah done a whole lot in the original show. I mean, that's, that's why you got to look really hard to find on the Andorian anywhere in next generation. <laughs> I mean, they, I think yeah. tendency is putting it very, very lightly. It yes, was really it, more of a draconian mandate. <laughs> yeah. And so there, they were, they were touchy about 
Uh, and, and it may go all the way back to the naked now when they were accused of, what are you just doing, redoing the original show again? So they were super sensitive about that in some ways. And so I think, especially after what happened with Naked Time and Naked Now, if, if they had done a mirror episode, they didn't want to hear that again. <laughs> so I, I think there was a tendency to stay. But, you know, those things come and go. By the time they got to D Space Nine, um, later on, they didn't have any problem doing some mirror stories. So... I, I these things evolve over time in TV series, just like they do in comics too. All right, now for folks who have been living under a horda for the past few years, uh, I was wondering if if I, one of you guys would mind kind of filling in our new audience, our new comic book readers, about what's going on currently in this Mirror War saga. What, what are we up to right now? Since there had never been next gen versions of the Mirror Universe, we had an opportunity to kind of come in and just hit the ground running and do and do pretty much what we wanted. Thanks to the gift of these great concepts that we got from J.K. Woodward, who had been um, commissioned by uh, John Van Sitters at CBS to create the next gen look of Mirror Universe. And so they came to us with these great, great designs for all the characters for the Mirror versions of the Picard's crew. And I said, like, okay, now here, go ahead and, and uh, tell us the story. And we from the from the the looks of these characters that that JK gave us it was where where we kind of decided what the story would would go from and we pick up with uh, a you know the the Terran Empire is down to nothing it's it's really been penned back down to earth in the very first beginning of our books we have Picard scheming to steal what he's heard is this this miraculous new ship which is the Enterprise D and then once he has his hands on that ship, then it's more of Picard's ambition going on as he as he uses thirsts for more power and more ways to get the Empire out of the situation they're in. And the the pivot point in all this is that the design work that J.K. Woodward did when he was working with CBS was that the problem normally with thinking about well, why wasn't there any Star Trek Next Generation mirror stories is because according to the timeline established in space nine, the Terran empire fell. And so our stories explain that, okay, the empire did mostly fall, but there's sort of a rump version of that Terran empire that's still surviving on earth and has been sort of pinned in very tightly by the Klingons and Cardassians, but they're still there and they're still struggling, but they're still around. And, and our story has been how Picard helps to lead uh, that re-emerging Terran empire. Yeah. And the tales that were being told out on Tarek Nor and DS9 that the empire had fallen completely, whereas propaganda being spread by the Klingon Cardassian Alliance to quash any hope Oh, any surviving humans that the Empire had a chance. Which comes up in Deep Space Nine. They talk about the great uh, propaganda that the Klingon Cardassians were using against Terrans. So, yes. Yes. So that, that you know, sometimes people ask, well, I thought we heard that there was no Terran Empire anymore. But in fact, there are actually some little seeds there that are in Deep Space Nine that fit in the, the story we're telling. And Picard's journey here is taking those seeds and growing them into into his way to, to lead the empire back to greatness. Yeah. It's very cool. That you guys are able to tie that in. Cause you know, this isn't just a TNG book. This is a TNG and uh, you know, a little bit spoiler alert, uh, you know, a little bit on into the series too. We do get a little bit of some deep space nine action happening. So that's yeah. some really cool stuff. Yeah, there yeah, too. Yeah. Yeah. So, around the covers. There's no spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> 
Fair enough. Fair enough. For anybody, who I know, know, I know I that JK Wilbur constantly gets questions about this. About what's how can this be? And, and JK Wilbur has his answer ready to go. So, and and JK, you know, at his covers, you can kind of see his his response to those questions sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> so we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier in the interview, but I'm curious. Uh, how deep does Paramount and the franchise owners, you know, how deep are their hands in the creative process here? And keeping in mind this Mirror Universe book right now, it's pretty much uncharted territory. So you guys have kind of free reign, I would imagine. But, you know, how much say at the end of the day does Paramount have in what the final product looks like? Well, they always look at everything and they approve it. And so, and, you know, sometimes people ask, well, do how, how can I put this? The, the question that, I think, and it's not just even in Star Trek, the, any kind of licensed product. They always ask, well, uh, how do you how do you get anything done? But don't don't they tell you what to do? Well, the thing is that if Scott and I didn't have at least some idea how to do this in such a way that they'd be happy with it, they wouldn't come to us to do it. I mean, they're not going to hire the people who would do a terrible job with their license. <laughs> so you know, what we turn over to them usually isn't stuff that they think, oh, this is terrible. What are we doing? <laughs> so usually we, and part of that's because we do know Star Trek pretty well. And so we know what would work and what would not work with, with, with uh, the license. And this could be Star Trek, it could be Star Wars, it could be anything. And so, you know, the, the secret of working with the licensor is, is to, to do something creative within the world and the parameters they have. So they don't, tell us what to do because that's what they're paying us for <laughs> if that makes any sense <laughs> they have total say and total approval but they don't tell us what to do because they've already bought off on the idea we brought them and that's what they want you know and and of course on top of that they need someone to register them they don't want to write it all in vision themselves so that's why they're they're paying creatives to, to write this stuff so the last thing they want to do is come in and have to rewrite somebody else's thing to go to canon <laughs> Or write it from scratch. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, they are very involved. I mean, uh, uh, Marion and, and and John and Risa at CBS, they read every script. And, and also... Um, Dayton uh, Ward's been involved they, in this. Dayton Ward well. also. They read every script and they give they give notes. But it's not... It's never changed the story because they've already approved the story before we even started. <laughs> because we, we, we submit them a full synopsis. I mean, sometimes we might, might, might pass them a little bit of a curveball, but that's all right. But, yeah, I mean, yeah. but <laughs> I, I, there's never a time when we toss them a curveball, they hate it. No, not like, you know, something that's completely, completely out, out of what we were expecting. Yeah. But, and the, they yeah, won't... And, you know, it's, it, it's, it's fun to the, in, in, in the sense that you're working with other people who actually know this material so well and you know, they have good feedback for us as well because it's just me and Scott. And so when Scott and I cash something out, it's like, geez, I wonder what somebody else might think about that. <laughs> Does that work for somebody else? And maybe even not even for a Star Trek point of view, maybe it's not like, oh, you know, you got that the, the color of that Klingon shirt wrong or whatever. Maybe it's like, oh, is that what you really want to do there? So like, yeah, let me think about that a bit. Is, so, that, is that too much? <laughs> especially, especially with Mary, you could get into, is that too much territory pretty easily? Yeah, but well, I mean, yeah, they always yeah. have good notes, and they have they often have a lot of good suggestions that we will incorporate. And sometimes we'll take those suggestions and turn them into like running bits because we're like, oh, that is a good idea. Yeah. the The really hard thing with Mirror is, um, especially as the Mirror TNG stories have played out, 
we have protagonists that are fundamentally awful. <laughs> awful. They're well, not evil. They're not evil. No. Well, they can be evil, but they're awful. <laughs> and, and if we make them less awful, we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. <laughs> right. It's walking because you want your readers to like to like and enjoy these characters. So you want them to do to do things that are that are cool and look great, but at the same time, they can't be too heroic and they can't be too a lot of things that normally you you that you would use to have a reader admire your characters you can't do too much of. So it's a tricky line to walk. And also mirror characters are not opposite characters, which yes. sometimes people get that that sort of mistaken understanding. You think that, well, is Mira Picard, the exact opposite of John Luke Picard. Well, he is and he isn't. But what happens and it's what's, where it gets interesting is that there are elements of, of Mira Picard that are opposite, but some things are opposite in good ways. Mira Picard is better at dealing with other people than John Luke Picard Prime is. Mira yeah. Picard actually knows how to work a room <laughs> in a way that John Luke Picard can barely even handle it, uh, one kid on, on his bridge. <laughs> And so, I'd argue Mary Picard's a better motivator. Oh, yeah. No, he is. Yeah, he's much better at working with people. Yeah. Because also because he's kind of willing to manipulate in a way that Prime Picard is not. Right. But yeah, and, but that's, I mean, we often tell people it's not Bizarro World, it's Mary yeah. Universe. So it's not just opposites. And, and when we do that, that goes back to the mirror episodes of uh, the original show and the mirror episodes on G Space Nine as well. Um, you know, Mirror Spock wasn't exact opposite of prime Spock. In fact, actually he had these redeeming qualities, which makes the whole existing later mirror universe work. <laughs> yeah. I like that distinction that you made there. Cause I think that's an important thing to note is that, you know, they're awful people, but they're not evil. They're not going to start kicking puppies just because it's fun. Um, so, you know, I'd like to ask on that same note, uh, you know, here in the mirror wars right now, you have a lot more time, a lot more freedom to really flesh out all of the characters. I mean, We've got Data doing stuff. We have Troy doing things. Everybody's contributing to the story right now in different ways, and we're really learning about who they all are. So uh, I'd like to know, who have you guys had the most fun playing with and writing about in this kind of mirror version of them? The one that I think we weren't expecting to make as much use of, and we did, is probably Barkley. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, Barkley, hands down. And that was a complete accident. <laughs> Barkley was, we did not go into this thinking that Barkley would be sort of the the pivot point anti-hero hero of the mirror universe for two he wasn't even in the original pitch no because and, with, as, as this worked out we started with the series and then through some like you know publishing stuff they came back to us and said well by the way not only are you doing the series but you're going to get this year's free comic book day book yeah and we'd already written number one and i said so go write it we hadn't written number one yet but we'd started to they're like now go write it to zero and i don't know figure it out and so we, that's where we came up with the idea of using Barkley as our kind of intro character to that world. But we had no idea that Barkley was going to be as involved as he was. That's the one time we kind of varied a little bit because we, we, I remember joking about it. It's like, you know, Mirror Universe Barkley should just be a badass. <laughs> that's, that's the one time I kind of did a little bit of, of, like, of, like, of like Bizarro versus Opposite. But we didn't go ahead of him. He's not, he's not no. like a complete badass. And, and, and he, he is, but he isn't too. I mean, in other ways, he's, he's really kind of lame, just like yeah. regular Barkley. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I mean, 
one of my favorite scenes in any of the mirror stories, I think it's, it's Carlos Nito, right, Scott, where, yeah. where Barkley and Troy are talking and mirror Barkley is outraged at how his counterpart is treated. He can't believe that uh, Prime Barkley is treated so badly, and he just he goes into a fit about it. And, 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 and Mira Troy just just starts laughing hysterically about it. And yeah. there there's something there that that that's where that mirror sort of twist is fun and interesting because what you get is you get a you get a little bit of the Prime character with that sort of mirror twist to it that ends up being kind of amusing, I think. <laughs> And Carlos's art in that is just great. That's one of my favorite sequences. I, I just love those, those panels. Yeah, I actually want to follow up a little bit about the artwork in the books because they've all been really great. And I'm curious to know in terms of how you guys write your comics. I mean, are you specifically giving them layouts? Are you kind of constructing how the page looks? Or are you the kind of guys that let your artists kind of have freedom and run with their whatever ideas they have? It's full script. So every page, there is the panel count and we and, and a rough layout. But we're also telling in terms of like the, how the panels are arranged on the page. But every full descriptions for every panel and full dialogue. But we also tell them, look, you guys are great artists. You're going to know how to make this page uh, really sing. If you can think of a way to improve it, by all means, give it a try. Run a bias as long as it doesn't change the panel account or the pacing. Or even a little more looser than you're suggesting compared to some other writers. <laughs> well, I think we've gotten more loose over the years as we've, got, as we've gotten such good artists. Yeah. I mean, I, I always know that. And in fact, you know, on this most recent one with Gavin, there have been multiple pages where I'm sort of kind of hoping that Gavin will, and he's always done it, uh, use his own creativity on some of the uh, the actual arrangement of the panels on a page. And and I, I never have any problem with that. I mean, there's, there's a reason why we, we have artists and because they can do that kind of thing a little bit better sometimes than I can. Yeah, but back to go with what you're saying, with issue one, we were we were doing a lot more, kind of, I think it's just a... a uh, a more detailed uh, panel breakdown and page breakdown because we, we'd never worked with, with Gavin before. And by the time we got that first issue one back, we're like, oh, we're going to be fine. And then we kind of loosened back up to the same way we worked with Messina or the JK, where we, we, we trust the artists to do it. Yeah, and even going back, if you look at some of our earliest scripts compared to what we do now, we're, um, we're much less likely to um, sort of insist upon panel count pages in the way that we used to, I think, Scott, don't you think? Yeah. I mean, if, yeah. if they, if, if they think adding a panel will like increase a beat and give us a more dramatic point and they're like, we're like, absolutely try it. Yeah. I, I, then, I think if, when you do that, sometimes you get great. Yeah. You get, you can get great surprises. Like for example, in, uh, on Star Trek Planet of the Apes, by by the, the third issue, Rachel, this is her, Rachel, this is Rachel Stott's first series. By issue three, she had really gotten gotten her like her, her speed up, where she was she was really really killing it. And we have this one scene where we have uh, uh, Kirk chasing Taylor Charlton Heston through the corridors of the Enterprise. And when we got the page back, it was just like from above shot that was like an old family circus strip where you would see Jeffy running around the backyard, and we're like, "Oh, that's genius!" And we hadn't asked for that. Like that's absolutely great. No. No. That's what when you have a great artist that you trust, yeah. you, get, you get those kind of benefits. And there, there's a number of pages like that in City on the Etcher Forever where JK um took what we had and he made it better. And well um, the, fam- the most famous one is the one he refuses to sell. 
Oh yeah, he still has that. <laughs> in, the, in the fifth issue, the big climax page, uh, it's uh, where where you see where you see the uh, Beckwith be, get punished. He he came up with this gorgeous kind of like pinwheel design to it, and yeah, I think it's uh, last I heard it was still up at his house. <laughs> yeah, and I think Scott and I we don't. I mean, we do put down the number of pages. We break it down by panel, but it's always been the case that we leave the artists some room to, to do that layout and get that the way that they think it's best. I mean, there's a, um, there was a scene in a most recent um, mirror story with uh, Picard racing through San Francisco in a car. And um, I sort of went back and forth about how much do I want to give Gavin details how to do it and how much do I want to let him do it on his own? And I, I didn't give a whole lot of details. I, I left him lots of room there and he did a great job with it. It's just fantastic. It's a really great, really great panel layout. Great yeah. stuff. Yeah. But I think, I think we also did tell him what our influence was. And I think he went and watched bullet. And I think that yeah. helps. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that was, that was, that was really, really cool. Um, yeah. Somebody on Twitter the other day mentioned the fact that, um, why does it say 1973? But Bullet came out in you know '68. Uh, I didn't tweet back, but the reason why we did 1973 is because I wanted to put the Trans American Pyramid into the story, <laughs> and the Trans American Pyramid did not exist at the time of Bullet, but it existed a few years later. And so when Picard makes this big turn right next to Trans American Pyramid, I couldn't do it the same the same year as Bullet, so I just put it a few years later. <laughs> no one, I thought no one no one would possibly think about that. And of course, on Twitter, someone caught it. And said, well, you know. <laughs> all right i'm not gonna all nitpick right. i just like the fact that picard is a fan of steve mcqueen that's kind of a cool thing right? to have yeah exactly <laughs> and then gavin gave him an ncc 1701d license plate on his car. Nice. <laughs> yeah, so. one of the things that's really fun too about the whole mirror saga that's going on right now is that you guys could have a lot of tertiary characters pop in like we've seen the outrageous okuna show up we just saw <laughs> one of the most recent issues uh ensign sonia gomez i mean she's not a captain yet she's still an ensign right now um, so, you know, I'm hoping maybe we'll get to see like a mirror universe version of the traveler to meet mirror Wesley. That'd be really cool. Um, but you know, I'd like to know, I, and I know you probably can't even say anything about this, but I have to ask or else my listeners will riot. Any other characters that maybe might pop up in surprises coming up in the next few issues? Um, there. well, there was one in the most recent one that was Leland T. Lynch came, uh, T. Lynch came back. I don't think of any others recently. Uh, just to let you know if, if it makes a difference to me, I'm not expecting you guys to actually give me a real answer for this question. Uh, <laughs> trouble. So, uh, yeah, you can, you can answer accordingly with that information. <laughs> no, no, there, there, there will be surprises coming, but I, um, because we're getting to, we're getting closer to the end. There's a little bit less room for some of those. Right. So it's, it's more of bringing everything together. Yeah, those, those are always tough because on one hand, we we don't want to put them in just for the sake of them being there. It's like, woohoo, you got um, you know, the barber or whatever. Yeah. People are dying. See, now, I the way. <laughs> now I regret that we didn't get Miramont in there. Damn it. Yeah. <laughs> Probably a bunch of bloody knives in the barber shop. I mean, I <laughs> nothing good about that. I can't imagine. Um, it's like Sweetie Todd, but no. Um, <laughs> exactly what it'd be like. Yeah. But on the other hand, we do we do like doing them because they're they're they are fun, and 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 sometimes they they actually end up adding to the story. I mean, 
the perfect example of that is uh, Leah Brahms. She came up in one of the very first uh, Mirror series, the very first Mirror series, and she sort of popped up now and again in ways that um, actually end up tying to the story more, more importantly than you might expect. <laughs> and for some reason, we've had artists, J.K. and Others have done such a great job of drawing her and seeing her as an evil mirror yeah. version. It's always been kind of a kick to me. <laughs> I, 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 I love I love mirror drunken hot mess Brahms. Yeah, I mean, and especially I mean J.K. in the in the final episode of the first series when they're at the banquet and she's already been overserved and she's like at the table and she's like in her head is like ah oh, Mariasa that's a toss up. <laughs> <laughs> One of the comics that kind of reminds me of is an old favorite I had from Marvel, which was uh, a six-issue, I think five or six-issue miniseries called Identity Disc. And uh, it was really cool because ultimately you didn't know how it was going to end up. And I feel it's kind of the same way here with this thing, too, is there's a lot of stuff happening. There's a lot of moving parts. Everybody has their own motivations. So we really don't know how this thing is going to really wrap up. And that's, I think, pretty interesting. And I know you can't tell me anything, but I'm, I'm just giving you my, my personal fan opinion of what's going on. That's one of the best the best things about Mirror Books is the the it's wide open where to take things. And that's, that's kind of where a lot of the fun, and the, also the fact that, you know, with the mirror books, characters can have, have greed based motivations and personal motivations that, that you shouldn't have in the more utopian classic Roddenberry. Yeah. There was a point in one of the mirror stories where we stressed more this idea that getting ahead and making something for yourself is a core element of sort of philosophy and thought for Terrans in the mirror universe. And, and we try to adhere to that, that in the mirror stories we've told that uh, as opposed to Roddenberry's sort of utopian idea in the prime universe, that self-centered, get yourself ahead thinking is what drives people in the mirror universe. And that is sometimes the thing to focus on rather than them being mirror versions or opposites. They are self-centered and um, all about themselves in a way (laughs) that, that motivates all of their thinking. And that's something I think we have found consistently helps to make those mirror stories uh, workable in a way that just thinking them as mirror opposites does not. Yeah. I'm interjecting that thought too. Like I think a great example of that is data because, you know, in the Star Trek TNG movies and the actual TV series, he's learning to be very much, you know, uh, the opposite of the mirror, mirror universe, you know, data in the show is very much about giving as much as he can of himself and ultimately does make a major sacrifice uh, that we see in nemesis. Uh, whereas the data we're looking at right now in the mirror universe, he's learning a whole different set of, of human traits and uh, it's he's learning it's to be selfish. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's what they pat him on the back for. <laughs> they, 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 they absolutely do. They, they say, you, now you're getting it. You know, and <laughs> that, that, that it's like all philosophy seems to be about the idea of, of, of self priority. And data is the best way to look at that because both days are trying to learn to be more human, but because humanity is so different, they're learning opposite lessons. And mirror data did not have people encouraging him to be human when he was a young android <laughs> in the same way that prime data did. And so that's why mirror data struggles more sometimes with dealing with humans because he didn't have a sort of uh, background people trying to encourage him how to be uh, 
a nice human. He had either people having him be a work slave on the mining planet, or he had people around him who were all thinking in terms of doing things for themselves. And that to data was to mirror data is as new as, <laughs> as anything else could be because he's not, he hasn't been exposed to that either. That was also one of the unexpected things that came with the series. When you have, when you have like strong characters that you can then take in different directions, sometimes they go in ways you don't expect. I mean, I think I, w- I would have expected most people thought we would do something with the data Jordy relationship because that's so important in next gen. But as we were writing it, the the notion of this Barkley data relationship seemed to like could make a lot more sense, and it kind of surprised us how how, how big a part it played in the whole series. Yeah, I, I think uh, the way that Mirror Barkley and Mirror Jordy uh, turned out was maybe not what we've even expected at first, but I think it, it actually made them more interesting than uh, if they had been sort of more um, sort of simple mirror versions of themselves. So my question to kind of follow up on all of this here is what comes after the mirror war? Are the mirror universe characters going to cross paths with the prime universe again? Is this the end or is this just the beginning? I don't know. <laughs> Got nothing for you on that one. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty much the answer I was expecting. So, question yeah. mark. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I mean, you totally delivered on that one. So, yeah, I, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, between the Q conflict we talked about earlier, between this en- enormous Mirror Universe saga you guys have got going on here, you've written some real serious Star Trek epics. So I'm kind of curious, is there still like a dream Star Trek series that you want to do that you haven't been able to do yet? Or is this Mirror Universe kind of like filling that, that gap for you? I think for now, the Mirror Universe has been doing it lately. I mean, there's a couple other projects that, uh, we'd like to do. There's at least one or so that we've sort of talked to CBS about in the past and might come around on that as well. Um, I think Star Trek comics can be hard because um, especially right now, you've got a lot of new Star Trek coming out and it's difficult to sometimes work around what else is going on in the franchise. So we don't always know what we'll be doing next with these kind of projects. Um, and we look at that and see where uh, where things might go. A lot of times uh, what we do will depend on kind of zigging where they zag in that, you know, if the, if the movies and now with all the TV shows, if they're all handling a certain thing, then the comics don't want you to kind of mess with that stuff because they're, they're playing with it. So you, and luckily Star Trek has become such a vast catalog of concepts that we'll go Okay, well, you guys are not playing with this, and we'll do that. So a yeah. lot, of, a lot of times, it becomes a matter of giving them the stuff they need that that does interfere with what they're doing. Yeah. And the good thing about the last two big projects we've done, this and and uh, the uh, the Q conflict, is that they're both such wide ranging stories that we can take elements from everything and, and kind of like plug them in and use them. And it kind of like if there's particular bits that we haven't gotten to yet or that we want to, we were still playing with facets of it, which is nice. Yeah. I mean, we recently did a D space nine story that was basically a sort of murder mystery slash um, psychological thriller. That's too and, long a sacrifice for anybody out there who wants to check it out. Exactly. And that's a good example of something that fits into uh, the Star Trek universe, but, it's not going to be 
stepping on whatever the next discovery story is going to be that we don't yep. we may not even know about <laughs> both both and, in yeah. series and in tone it was not anywhere near what they were all doing so it was, it was a nice good fit in there yeah and and i like stories like that i mean uh that was that was a lot of fun we sort of worked out a lot of the details with with that that particular story with cbs in some fun ways i think that was a, a really nice um uh, i've heard some people say it uh, that nice compliments about it that it's it seemed like a real geez based time story which is what we were going for we really wanted to tell you know it's sometimes just nice not to tell a story that's some sort of giant epic with q and everybody from the entire star trek universe like well what about what about a nice geez based nice story that actually fits into that universe and um uh you know peels back a, a look at a particular character in the case of ours it was uh it was odo and we got to see uh, uh Odo, sort of in his in his realm, what he did best, and that's what I really enjoyed about it was well that that's 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 what Odo was there for, and that's what he did, that's what he was good at doing. And, and oddly enough, in our story, he actually kind of struggles with it, doesn't do a great job till towards the end. <laughs> I love the epics, but sometimes it's nice to do a bottle show. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so the epics are fun, but I I, I really enjoyed that D Space Nine story too. I thought it was a lot of fun, and um, we have some great art and, and uh, great coloring in that story. That's fantastic stuff. So what you're saying is the next series you're going to work on is going to be Star Trek Babies, where we get the the rascals <laughs> <be> even younger. <laughs> All right, guys. So as we come to a close here, you know, this show wasn't just about focusing on Star Trek. I always like to kind of get a, a more bigger picture of who you guys are as human beings. And uh, I would imagine that throughout your creative time working in comics and other industries as well, that you guys have probably had like one piece of advice you got from somebody that's always stuck with you and been very important to how you live and do your work. What's the best piece of advice you've ever gotten from someone else about your profession? This wasn't so much advice I got from somebody because, uh, as we kind of alluded to earlier, David and I both came to, to being to being freelance writers kind of unexpectedly. And so it was never a, a, a thing where we actually had advice. We kind of been finding our own way. And one thing people do ask me is, how do you get in the comics? And I always say, well, it's tricky because nobody gets in the comics the same way. And after you do it, they board up the way you got in so no one else can do it. Yeah. So it's tricky. But one thing I do tell people a lot, and this is advice no one gave me, I just had to learn it myself just through working with, uh, with Chris Ryle on the website is that the best thing you can ever do if you really want to be a writer in any capacity is just be writing every day. I, I when I was working on the website for, for, uh, for Kevin Smith with Chris Ryle, we updated that site every day for three years. And not a day went by that we didn't have new content whether we were editing and writing. We did, we did the daily entertainment news. So I had to have like five good jokes every day and what what that did for me was it kind of completely broke me of the idea of, of writer's block. When you have to write every day, there's the writer's block. It's just it becomes a muscle and you only get that muscle from just daily use. And the thing I tell people is if you do want to be writing, write every day. And the other thing is. And this is the, the, the thing I, I, I get a lot from people who want to be both novelists or comic writers is finish. Everyone's starting a novel, everyone's starting a comic or a project, finish it. Even if you, if it's not what you want, even if it's not as good as you think it can be, you can always rewrite something, but finish the project. Have it be done with it so that you can go back and really evaluate it. I, I, that, I mean, that's also the kind of advice that, you know, you almost do have to learn for yourself because if someone would have told me that before I started working on the website, 
I wouldn't have listened to it. You have to kind of be in that zone where you're, this is this is my profession now. This is what I'm this is what I'm doing, and uh, that is the kind of the, for for us over the years. Because sometimes we'll get lots of we'll get lots of um, lead time on a project and lots of time to work on it. And sometimes I say, you know, this just fell through. So now we need this new series. Can you get us a script in four days? And you know that would be terrifying when we first started, but now it's yeah, all right. If we have to, we can do that. David, what do you think? So, well, what I'd add to that is a couple things. Um, one thing is that the the finish finish things is is a good one. I mean. James Gunn, the director, he tells people that all the time on Twitter. He says, you know, finish it up. Don't don't leave don't leave your projects unfinished. Get them done. He tell, tells people all the time you got to rewrite, rewrite things, and that's all good. I think that's important. I mean, it is important that you know it's you're not going to win anybody by saying oh, I've got this great idea and then have it, nothing never never have anything in hand. The sort of cautionary tale I have about the write every day thing, which I think is true, but as someone who struggled with writer's block myself sometimes, always know in the back of your mind that you could be the person who writes every day and that may not get you a single time book for the rest of your life. It won't, there is no guarantee <laughs> that you're going to get a project by writing every day. Oh, no, for, for sure, 100%. <laughs> and I, I, think, I think if Harlan would hear what he would say, you know, writing every day doesn't matter if you suck. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he would. Then he'd show you his pocket knife. So... <laughs> What I would say, don't make that the be all and end all of your life and think that if I, if I don't do this, there's nothing else for me and that's all I can do. And, and I've had a lot of jobs in my life. I've done a lot of different things. And don't think that uh, one of these, the one, any one of those things is the only thing you could be able to do or that that's the thing that um, if I do it enough, it'll become so great that, that people will be throwing them something because it doesn't work that way. It doesn't happen. So that, that that's the cautionary tale about that. Well, the, the, um, what I, what, and uh, to, to, to add to what you're saying, and I think you're hundred percent right, but the, the, the key is when the perfect opportunity comes along and you get your shot, at least then you're ready for it. Yes. Yeah. But be aware that it is a matter of, things lining up so that your opportunity comes up and it'll come up. I do believe that, but it might be years. <laughs> you know, you never know. So it's, it's a matter of being prepared for opportunities. I wouldn't count on it. <laughs> <laughs> and this is why this works. It's a, it's a, it's a yin and yang. <laughs> I mean, it, it could happen. Yeah. But you know, don't, I would say don't stake your life on it or more importantly, don't stake your happiness on it. hundred <laughs> percent. And, and, and that that's that's really important with it doesn't matter if it's kind books or anything else um i wouldn't i wouldn't stick your 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 happiness on anything like that because you never know how things would turn out and there are always forces that are behind the scenes you don't know about i mean we've had projects where um a licensor or a publishing company had to make a change for various reasons had nothing to do with what we were doing wouldn't matter if we'd have written a day or not, that project wasn't going to happen anymore. And that's just how things go. And these are projects by the way that were like, you know, underway, we'd been paid for, and then they just didn't happen. You yeah. know, so what so, and, and then what do you do? You just go, all right, what's the next thing? Yeah, that, that's why I don't get sometimes people love to ask us about uh famous unfinished or unwritten story. 
And, you know, they want to know what are these, what, what were they? And it's like, well, you know, I got, I got a ton of stories like that, but A, I probably shouldn't be telling them to you. <laughs> and then B, do you really want to know about him? Because it didn't happen anyway. <laughs> but C, they might come around again. Right. They, 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 they very well could. And, and so if I, if I got this in my back pocket, I'm not just giving it out for free when depending on who's in charge at some studio, it could actually happen. No. And you know, it's, you know, another way to think about this too, is that, you know, think back to star Wars and think about how many different answers George Lucas gave when people asked him about new star Wars. There's going to be six. There's going to be nine. There's going to be 12. Yeah. How many different answers do you tell people? And, and, you know, he made decisions he made for his own reasons. And also because there were unresolved forces behind him and his, his personal life and his professional life that, you know, made things go the way they did. And so that's why I I don't want to get too caught up sometimes in the, Oh, you know, that famous unwritten story. Oh boy. Yeah. (laughs) How many of those are there? And what, what are they going to do for you now? So, you know, my answer to that question is, is really don't take, don't get too caught up. <laughs> yeah, sort of like, you know, Yoda to, to Luke, don't get too caught up in things. <laughs> Fair enough. I like how we end the Star Trek podcast with a Star Wars quote, by the way. <laughs> exactly. Because Star Trek wouldn't do that line. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Shots fired. Um <laughs> So, you know, as kids who grew up watching the original Trek series, reading the Gold Key comics, uh, you know, now you guys are part of the Star Trek universe. So I got to ask, you know, what is the best thing about being a part of this massive world? I like the fact that this universe that meant so much to me as a kid, I got a little chunk of it now and it's mine. It's ours. And then we, and then we, we added to it. And no matter what, I mean, I mean all storytelling is, is arbitrary in that. Stories are canon if they mean something to the reader. So somebody could come along in 20 years and say that all the IDW comics never happened. And my answer would then would be, no, they totally happened because I, I know somebody out there who's got the book in their hands and they told me they like it. And that story means something to them. So again, I, I, I know we, we keep going back to Harlan, but that's you know, Harlan. Harlan kind of loomed large for me. You know, Harlan always said that, you know, the only thing that matters after I'm gone is the stories because no one's going to remember my name. And there's not going to be a statue of me, but those stories will be around forever. And that's kind of how I feel about it. I mean, the stories we've told, they mean something to people who like Star Trek, and they're going to be a part of it. That, to me, is kind of like the, uh, one of the best rewards about this. Yeah, that, that's that's the fun part for me, too. I mean, I, I like the fact that people can read some of these stories that I've worked on and some of that, hey – that fits in with Star Trek as I see it. And I enjoyed reading that and it made a lot of sense and it made a lot of sense within the universe. And maybe most important in some ways it, it fit within that canon and something we haven't had a chance to talk about too much here, but Scott and I work really hard to fit even the mirror stories within the canon of Star Trek. Cause we know that matters for people. I mean, and when things don't fit into Star Trek, readers and viewers know and they like they don't not very happy about it <laughs> and so i i think we really try to make it so that someone could read our comic and say hey look that could be an episode i mean the the best praise we got for that recent Deep space nine story was people who said you know that would have been a great Deep space nine episode we really like that that, that, that like someone's actually told me in a new new, new Deep space nine story yeah so 
we we work so hard. That's kind of always been our first question with the story is, could this be an episode? Yeah. And um, I think that's what I like to think about with these. I, I like to think that someone would think that. And I mean, we don't we don't write. We don't write our Star Trek stories so that they have a an Aesop's fable kind of, um, oh, here's the lesson you learned today at the end of the story. But I think that even in our mirror stories, we do try to write it so that there's a message there about those characters that rings true to a reader and can think of it as an extension to what they already know about those characters. And to me, that's really important. I find it satisfying that even Mira Troy, as weird as she is, makes sense within that, that Mira Star Trek universe. And someone could think, yeah, that, that makes sense to me. That's how she would be. <laughs> and that, I think that's a lot of what matters to both Scott and I, as far as these stories go. Is that, and and in, in the Harlan sense of it, is someone will remember that story later on. I mean, it's, it's, there's there's definitely some satisfaction that idea that that we we contributed to that and people think of it that way. I mean, not that I can say from personal experience, but uh, you know, as someone who's read a lot of things like Star Trek comics and other franchises as well, it's a real double-edged sword to work on this kind of a product because you're basically being held up against the TV show or, or whatever the franchise is, you know, originally based from. So, and you got to make it fit into that universe, like you just said. So, you know, I got to tell you guys, you know, as a fan, I'm I'm legitimately all goosebumps right now talking to you guys because you're both just doing such an amazing job on all the Trek books you've worked on. Uh, I really enjoyed them. Uh, among all the communities I'm in that talk about comics, I've never seen a bad word about any of the stuff you're working on. And I can tell you every month, everybody's very excited for what's happening in the Mirror Wars. So I, I just want to say for all the fans out there, you know, thank you so much for all your efforts, all of your hard work. It's really some great stuff you guys are doing right now. So, uh, you know, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for writing some real wonderful comics. It's, it's great for us to hear. And also, in some ways, it's kind of been harder the last couple of years because we used to be able to go to conventions and hear a little bit of that from people face to face. Because we and... really work in a vacuum. <laughs> the last two years with no conventions, we really don't get that kind of kind of like chance to interact with the readers. So, I mean, uh, that's great to hear. We really appreciate it. Yeah, no, we, it's nice to hear. And and it's and you know, getting all those details right is hard. I mean, it, it's it's a lot of work, and I mean the amount of time that we spend looking at resources and trying to make sure that what we put into a story is actually, and I mean, down to the simplest things like, you know, the way a ship works, the way a ship looks, the way a character acts, there's and, a lot of stuff. And the bigger picture stuff is making sure that a plot element hasn't been done in one of the seven or eight Star Trek series. With so many yeah, episodes. I, I know. It, <laughs> that, it, that's, it, that is the really tricky part, especially of the Star Trek universe is that there's so many plots that have already been done. So finding your way through that can be... Uh, yeah, well, I mean, you know, you know, setting Enterprise aside, you've got three seven-year runs of Star Trek stories, <laughs> plus everything after Enterprise, and it, it is, it is, it's difficult. <laughs> I mean, someone, sometimes people like to compare Star Wars and Star Trek, and at least in Star Wars, you don't have as many individual episodes to deal with you're getting there now, maybe, but it certainly didn't in the past. <laughs> they they pluck things from their their uh, comics and novels that they want to use, but they're not beholden to all that stuff. No, and, and, and Star Trek, you're beholden to everything that's appeared on screen happens. 
Yeah, I mean, part of the way the the Trek comics and actually most even the Trek novels work is that they are canon relative to the original show, but they may or may not be canon relative to each other, <laughs> which is something that people have a hard time understanding. I think sometimes getting their mind around that is that even within IDW comics, uh, you can't guarantee every single IDW comic that uh, is canon with each other, but they all have to be canon with the TV shows and the movies. <laughs> so it's sort of like a, a spider <laughs> and the tendrils or legs that come out of that spider are like tentacles, but they don't always go in the same directions. Well, listen, I could spend another two hours just kissing your guys' butts telling you how great you are, um, but I'm going to save that for hopefully one day when I get out to your neck of the world. And I can hopefully meet you guys at a convention uh, out in California. That'd be so cool to do. Um, but again, you know, thanks so much for all the great work you guys are doing. Uh, and the Mirror Universe has grown so much, I think, because of you guys. I mean, I've now got uh, Mirror Picard and all the Mirror characters in my Star Trek Timelines app, which is so cool. And I'm really hoping Playmates gets around to doing some Mirror Universe uh, Picard figures and things like that. That'd be so cool to have some toys, these things. And these that are things nice. you guys created. That'd be cool. So for anybody out there who wants to check out some of the work we've talked about today, uh, we are going to have links to Amazon and a few other places where you can pick up all the different books they've written. Uh, and of course, right now, check it out, uh, Star Trek Mirror Wars. It's on, I was going to say newsstands, but no one has newsstands. Go to your local comic book shop, support them, uh, go buy some comics, you guys. So uh, David, Scott, thank you so much for joining us here today. It's really been a wonderful time. Thanks. Thank you. Our pleasure. That's it for this week's episode of Trek Untold. Until next time, please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And if you're in a position to financially support the show, please consider becoming a supporter over on patreon.com slash trekuntold or pick up some merchandise from our Redbubble store. If you're looking for direct links for any of these things, links will be right in the show notes. If you have any questions or comments for the show or would like to suggest a guest or discuss any sponsorship ideas with us, send me a message at trekuntold at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to Trek Untold and for continuing to support this show. I hope you'll come back next time to learn more stories about Star Trek and beyond. Until then, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and always remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by Treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms is powered by the RageWorks Podcasting Network and is affiliated with Nerd News Today. <laughs>